politics. It doesn't just play out in the political world, but also in companies, social clubs, industry associations, families, and even among siblings vying for the approval of their parents. Take this true story told by the Horn Group and see if you can identify with some of the players. Tony, a senior vice president for a global cosmetic company based in Hong Kong, was asked to consider a role at corporate headquarters in New York. The move would put him next in line for the CEO position. Tony was viewed as a strong leader in the cosmetic industry and was a philanthropic and active member in his community. He began his career in marketing and never lost sight of the importance of PR, communication, and positioning power. He was frequently in the news, photographed with foreign dignitaries, entertainers, and others in power. The promotion meant Tony had to pick an heir apparent. Tony had two qualified VPs on his team, Tom and Georgina. Tom was a strong marketing guru and had Tony's attention to detail. Tom's marketing events and projects ran smoothly and efficiently, winning team awards. Georgina, with a background in brand management, positioned both Tony and the company as industry leaders. Through Georgina's effort, the business was viewed as the number one cosmetic company in the Asia-Pacific region. Both were extremely capable, and the inside gossip was that Tony would likely pick Georgina. She had leadership presence, was very well-known within the industry, and a strategic thinker, something Tony's team needed. A week before the succession planning meeting, Tony called Georgina into his office and suggested she take a different role, as he knew the CEO was looking for a global head of brand management. He said to her, I want to give Tom an opportunity to grow. He deserves more recognition. Everyone seems to know you, but no one seems to know who Tom is. He's fading under your shadow. Tony also mentioned he wanted to promote Javier, a director of research and design, to take over Georgina's role. Caught off guard, Georgina listened, said little at first while she sat there, and soon saw the chess pieces falling into place. The role Tony was suggesting was a figurehead at best. Making this move would completely derail Georgina's chances of becoming the CEO. Tony wanted to move Georgina out and put two people in place he could control, allowing him to continue his involvement and control the Asia market from New York. Georgina was furious and stared in on him, visibly upset. Yet she knew Tony's influence and quickly took a step back. Clearly angry, she realized her anger would not change anything with him at that moment and more likely would impact her career negatively. Thinking on her feet, she changed her approach and said she would think about the offer. She was gracious with her parting comments, and upon leaving, Tony was not certain when she left exactly what she was thinking. Georgina, like Tony, was viewed as an influential industry leader. She went home, tapped into her network, and made a few calls to find out what was happening inside corporate. Within a few weeks, Tom and Javier were both promoted. And Georgina, she jumped two levels ahead to executive vice president of a larger global function, effectively the same level as Tony. How did she do it? Georgina had bigger goals and was always sticking ahead, 
two steps ahead. Through her contacts, she heard about a new position and decided to raise her profile through a meticulously planned PR campaign. Before Tony left the company, they organized a party to celebrate Tony's contribution and Tom and Javier's promotions. Tom asked Georgina if she would give the closing remarks as Javier was out of town and Tom was uncomfortable giving a public send-off, particularly in view of what happened. Her first thoughts, you've got to be kidding. No way I'd ever show up to that jerk's going away party. Closing remarks, I couldn't say anything that could be repeated in public. Tell them I have a family engagement and screw all of them. I'm on to bigger things. That is what she thought. But then thinking more and looking at the political dimension of the party, the players, and all the forthcoming roles, she changed her strategy. Georgina agreed to give the closing remarks, spent a week writing, interviewing, and getting quotes on Tony. During the interviews, she learned much about Tony and more on the perception of Tony in the marketplace. Many were not flattering. And to her surprise, some people had nothing worth quoting or were indifferent to him. Georgina gave a gracious, funny, and heartfelt speech that resulted in a standing ovation for Tony. She remarked on his business achievements, leadership within the community, his philanthropy, and his guidance. Tony was given a royal send-off. Within a few short weeks, Georgina's promotion to EVP was announced. No one in the room could have possibly known. All eyes were on Tony's succession plan. Had she been promoted under Tony, she would have lost her opportunity for the EVP role. If she reacted poorly to Tony's decision, she would have lost her chance to move into a bigger role. She landed a better job than Tony, Tom, or Javier, a role with more power, influence, and prestige. She's now competing with Tony for the CEO's role. When I read this true story, it brought me back to my days of working in corporate America. The politics, the backstabbing, the angling for positioning, the people who only flatter the boss but do no work, the say nice things to my face but I know you are really jealous of me type of people, or that I have to be nice to you or put up with you because of your connections or your position, but I really hate you and the situations you are in or the feeling of sheer joy when you outmaneuver or outplay someone. Whether in the workplace, your school, among your friends, hobby groups, or among family members, when you feel you are in this political game, and especially when you are being outplayed and outmaneuvered, as a follower of Jesus Christ, how should you act and what should you do? I know this is an issue that many of us struggle with, even if you're not working in the corporate setting, the politics in your family life, or even amongst your friends is something very real. We want to take a look at this issue as we continue our series, Checkmate, looking at the life of King Solomon. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1 will be what we study this morning. I read now verses 1 to 4 of 1 Kings chapter 1. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our lord the king, and let her stand before the king, and let her care for him, 
and let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the King may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her into the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. Here the Bible tells us that King David was very old and had health challenges. In fact, he was so old, he could not even naturally warm himself, even with blankets. And so apparently, culturally, at that time, it was appropriate and acceptable that a young woman would be invited to provide nursing care for the aging king. The Bible is very clear to express that nothing inappropriate was happening. Even though his nurse, Abishag, was very beautiful, David did not have a sexual relationship with her and was not even tempted to do so. You see, David was past his prime, and his time on earth was almost over. A successor would soon have to come to power. Verse 5 and 6. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He was also very good-looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Knowing that his father was oiled and frail, a power struggle ensued in the royal household. While God had already chosen Solomon to succeed David, even before he was born, as we talked about last week, and David had told Bathsheba and presumably the royal household that Solomon would be his successor, Adonijah didn't care and wanted to be king in defiance of God's will. You see, Adonijah was the fourth son of King David, but the eldest that was still living. And presumably, he believed that the oldest living son of King David should be king and not God's chosen in Solomon. So Adonijah did what he needed to do to present himself as the rightful next king of united Israel. He presented himself as kingly to the people. He traveled with a great contingency of people and had a big procession with a group of 50 men walking ahead of him to draw public attention to himself, just like a paparazzi of photographers would draw our attention today as we wonder who was this VIP who was being pictured the Bible tells us he definitely looked the part of royalty as he was good-looking. He must have good genes because his brother Absalom was also very good-looking, but had also tried to take power and usurp his father, King David. Sadly, David was either too weak to tell Adonijah to stop what he was doing, or more likely, in his old age, was simply unaware of the plotting of Adonijah. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah was smart. He surrounded himself with people who he supposed he needed to be in alliance with him in order to be king. He knew how to play the political game. He got the support of the commander of the army, Joab. He also won the support of Abiathar, the leading priest, to join him. But there were many who saw through what Adonijah was doing and did not follow him like Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, who was a top military commander and leader of the Keratites 
and the Pelotites, an elite mercenary company who served as David's bodyguards along with David's mighty men. Verse 9 and 10. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the stone of Zeholeth, which is by En-Rogel. He also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty man, or Solomon, his brother. In order to consolidate his supporters and present himself as a spiritually legitimate king candidate, the Bible tells us Adonijah offered sacrifices at En-Rogel and gathered everyone for a meal, including all of his royal brothers and the royal household, most likely to get them to swear their allegiance to him or to crown him as king. He purposely didn't tell or invite those he knew would not be willing participants or would object to his claim to succeed as Father David, including his brother Solomon. How could these people be so easily fooled? And yet they were. But we don't have to look any further. We look at our own lives. Often we're so easily fooled because our own assessment of people is purely based on appearance and perception. And so we often fall prey to marketing ploys or how a person presents their image. Even people as spiritual as the judge and prophet Samuel fell into this natural tendency. That's why God warns him in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, these words. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. My friends, here's the first thing we need to understand and be aware of in the games that are being played. Number one, realize looks can be deceiving. Realize looks can be deceiving. We've been warned over and over again in the Bible that the outward appearance of people, their actions, their words, even spiritual words, often mask the true intentions of their hearts or they are covering sin. There were hypocritical Pharisees in Jesus' times, and there are modern-day Pharisees today, even in the church. Don't be fooled as followers of Christ. We have to be wise. Looks can be deceiving. I'm reminded of a story told of a Houston-area airport that catered to business people, where there was a particular flight that would get an overwhelming number of complaints from passengers about how long it took the luggage to arrive at the baggage carousel. In fact, there was so much complaint that the airport even staffed more luggage handlers to this flight that it cut the wait time to a relatively short eight minutes, and yet the complaints still came. So airport management sent an on-site management team to witness firsthand what was happening, what was the issue, and why so many complaints. They discovered that the flight always landed in the terminal gate closest to the luggage carousel. So it would take passengers one minute to walk to the carousel and then wait seven minutes for the luggage. So to remedy the situation, the airport manager switched the flight to land at the furthest gate from the luggage carousel, where it would take six minutes 
to walk to the baggage claim and then wait two minutes for the luggage. Since the move, there has never been a complaint as to the slowness of the luggage. Sometimes it's all about perception and perspectives, which is the game Adonijah played. Now listen carefully. However smart we think we are, and however spiritual we think we may be, we can be so easily fooled, especially without wise counsel or people pointing out our blind spots. We can be manipulated even if we think we are right, if we don't have people asking us the tough questions. Remember, my friends, if something is too good to be true, it probably is. No one is perfect. If something seems off, then keep up your guard. There are always two sides to every story, and you should always ask the question, why? Why does he or she act this way? There must be a deeper underlying root issue. What looks right may not be what it should have been. Realize looks can be deceiving, and we can be so easily fooled. That's why as followers of Jesus, we are to be wise and discerning. Jesus' parable of the shrewd manager in Luke chapter 16 speaks to this truth. People in the world are crafty, and they are looking out for themselves. And so as Christians, we should also use wisdom and not be so gullible and naive and to be so easily fooled because looks can be deceiving. Look what happens starting in verse 11. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Then, while you are still talking there with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. The Bible tells us Nathan the prophet got wind of Adonijah's plans and quickly went to Queen Bathsheba and told her to go to King David to remind him of the promise he had made to her to make her son Solomon his heir. Remember, as we talked about last week, Solomon's selection to succeed David was really God's decision, and he directed David to do so. Now, we don't know whom David told about Solomon being his successor, but for sure he told Bathsheba, and even gave his word, his promise, and Nathan the prophet knew about this. Perhaps it can be noted that a lack of clear communications and dissemination of information to the wider public on the part of David contributed to this succession crisis. So Bathsheba does, as Nathan the prophet advised, which verses 15 to 19 recounts. Bathsheba clarifies with David who is to be his successor. She tells him the whole nation of Israel needs clarity on this matter, verses 20 to 21. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. 
Bathsheba stressed in verse 20 that the announcement of who is the next king has to come from King David. The people need to hear publicly from him whom the Lord has chosen. The implications are dire because if David doesn't do it, then when he dies, Adonijah will indeed take the throne and her life and that of her son Solomon's would be at risk. In verses 22 to 27, we read that Nathan the prophet comes in while Bathsheba is asking for clarification from David to corroborate her story and also ask for clarification from David. Nathan asks David if he had changed his mind and chosen Adonijah to be his successor and that no one knew about it because Adonijah is acting like he will be the next king of Israel. Everyone is wisely seeking clarification finding out what is right and clarifying what is true. Look at verses 28 to 31. Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord, King David, live forever. David's mind was still sound, and he spoke with clarity. He said to his wife Bathsheba, with Nathan the prophet as witness, that as the Lord has directed and as he has promised her, Solomon would be David's successor, the next king of Israel. There is now no doubt of what is right and what is true, because when it doubt, go to the source. And with this proclamation from King David, action must be taken to prevent Adonijah from taking the throne. But before we see what happens, what can we take away from the actions of Nathan, Bathsheba, and David? First, I think a great takeaway is that we are reminded that it is important to be clear in our communication. I'm not sure why David's choice to succeed him was not known to all. The Lord had already clearly revealed his will for Solomon to be the next king of Israel. Perhaps David was afraid of how his other sons would react. Perhaps he thought he still had time. We simply don't know. However, if the public had known God's revealed will on the matter, then you probably wouldn't have this situation as it would be very hard to sway the people against both God and King David's decision. David will correct this mistake and make a public declaration later. But true to life, practically, clear communication is so important. In fact, often the more people know and are aware of something, the less misunderstanding and gossip. Even if the news is bad or upsetting, it is better that it is explained to the public. When we are not clear in our directions, purpose, vision, and what's happening, then there is confusion among the people. From the actions of Bathsheba and Nathan, we see secondly, that if you are unsure, then speak up and seek clarification and confirmation. Find out what is right and clarify what is true. Now that, now that it is clear in the minds of Bathsheba and Nathan what is right and true and what is God's will and David's desire, then it gives them proper motivation and intentionality for the next course of action. 
there is now motivation to fight for what is true, to seek for accountability, and to right the wrongs. And my friends, this is really the responsibility of every Christian for conflict avoidance. Seek to know the truth and to know what is right. And putting it all together, this is our second principle for what to do when games are being played. Number two, find out what is right and clarify what is true. Find out what is right and clarify what is true. Let me share with you something interesting that happened last Sunday. Some of you may not know that we as a staff have a FB messenger group for operations, updates, and questions. So I'll usually check my, phones on, uh, my, my phone on Sunday mornings to see if I need to address an issue. Well, at the second service uh, at around 11.20 a.m., during the scripture reading portion of our service, I got a message from the pianist saying, Good morning. Busy ka ba? Are you busy? May favor sana ko. I have a favor to ask. And I thought it was really weird that the church pianist would be asking me if I'm busy, knowing that I'm going to preach a sermon in the next few minutes. But maybe there was something she wanted or needed to tell me to do as part of the worship service. So I replied, sure. Then she replied that she needed to borrow money from me. And if I could send her money on GCash or do a bank transfer. Of course, I found this very odd. Why would you borrow money from the pastor right before he was going to preach? <laughs> but it just so happened that the pianist was sitting right behind me. So I turned around and asked, why are you asking me for money? <laughs> and she replied, my Facebook messenger has just been hacked, and that's someone trying to scam you. Ignore and report, please. I just laughed because I bet you the hacker didn't know that the person he was pretending to me just happened to be sitting right behind me at church. So I replied back, the real person happens to be sitting behind me at church while you pretend to be her. You should be ashamed for what you are doing trying to scam a pastor. <laughs> and I sent it, and then I went up to preach. My friends, be wise. Take the time to find out what is right and to clarify what is true. If it is too good to be true, it probably is. Many smart people are fooled by scams because they don't take the initiative to verify with friends and family and even ask around if something is true or not. In a world where everyone is trying to outplay and outmaneuver each other, Christians should take the time to find out what is right and to clarify what is truth. This holds great application even as you grow in our Christian faith. Take the time to know what you believe and why you believe what you believe. In our theology step class this past Wednesday, a question was asked during the question and answer portion after my lecture. Pastor, my son's friend says that Christianity is just wrong. How do we respond? My response was, have your son ask his friend what part he believes is wrong so we can give a proper reply. Because from what I've researched, our Christian faith is very credible. And I replied, I bet you, the friend, can't cite specifics of what parts he believes are wrong because it's a blanket statement without much research. But sadly, our, in our culture today, we don't put in the initiative to find out clearly what is true and what is right. And thus, the ambiguity and lack of clarity in our minds causes doubt and confusion. 
That's why I always challenge all of us to ask, ask, ask. It never hurts to ask questions. That's why ever since I've pastored this church, I'm not afraid to take questions. Just ask. I love questions. I found that the more transparent you are, the more you gain trust. And once you gain trust, you can only go on to do bigger and greater things. One cannot just demand trust. You have to earn it by being open, authentic, and willing to take questions. Anyway, now that David's desire to fulfill God's will as it relates to his successor has been clarified, the appropriate response and action must be taken. Look at verses 32 to 37. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place. For I appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. The Bible tells us with great wisdom, David realized that he needed to do the very same thing that Adonijah had done. For you see, two can play this game. He asked for Zadok to represent the priest. Nathan to represent the prophets, and Benaiah to represent the military. They were the highest-ranking priest, prophet, and soldier in the land, and by their support of Solomon, it would show that Solomon had legitimacy. David also prepared his own personal royal mule for Solomon to sit on as he made his way to be anointed as king in Gihon. Verses 38 to 40. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Keratites and the Pelatites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him. And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. They did as David instructed and anointed Solomon, the next king of Israel. Notice that they took with them the Keratites and the Pelatites with them to the anointing. These were powerful mercenaries from Crete and Philistia who were David's royal bodyguards to ensure everything went as planned. They left nothing to chance. These righteous people took action to stand for what is right and to do the right thing. And this is our third principle for what we are to do when we're in the midst of the games being played at work, at home, or at school. Remember, number three, take action to stand for what is right. Take action to stand for what is right. You know, all too often, Christians don't do what needs to be done. We're too passive. We like to stick to the sidelines and to sit on the bench. But my friends, eternity is at stake. There is truth and righteousness to be fought for. But all we do is 
passively say, well, this isn't our fight. We should just pray and, and see God work. We should let go and, and, and let God. We think that somehow we take action, then we're not fully trusting in God. Or some will say, well, let's just pray about it and spiritualize away the issue, often because they don't want to deal with the issue or the problems head on. But my friends, the Bible never teaches this. Yes, there are things we don't need to fight for, like the temporary worldly things of life. It's okay. Let the world win in their games. But when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to issues of eternity, when it deals with truth and righteousness, that is something we're taking a stand for. That is something worth fighting for. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul admonishes young Timothy with these words, fight the good fight of faith. It is an admonition to us as Christians as well that, it, that we are to prepare to fight spiritual battles head on, to do our part to carry out our specific responsibilities as followers of Jesus Christ. For example, if there's a fire in your condo building and you see it. That is not the time to assemble a prayer meeting to pray for everyone's safety and for God's protection while the fire is raging. If there's a fire in your building, the right thing for you is to say a quick prayer in your heart and to go, to go alert those who may not be aware and then to evacuate the building. Similarly, if there are people who are on the path towards destruction, you need to alert them to this. If they're doing something wrong and sinning, you call them out, speaking, the Bible says, the truth in love. They may not like you taking action to stand for what is right. And you know what? Most likely, they will doubt your good intentions, and you will suffer consequences. But still, it shouldn't matter. You need to speak up. This is a generation, young and old, that needs to find its voice, that needs to speak up and take action to stand for what is right, what is biblical. Even if they make fun of you, even if they don't like you, you are to be a godly influence in your spheres of influence among your friends and family. I don't know if you're familiar with a show called What Would You Do? hosted by John Quinones, which does social experiments to see what people would do or if they will speak up for those who are being picked on or being treated badly or other situations like encountering conflict or seeing illegal activity. I like this show because it shows the compassion of people's heart, usually. And I put myself in those situations and thought, if I would speak up and do the right thing. Those situations included, what would you do if you see someone being made fun of for their disability or being overweight? What would you do if you saw someone being insulted because they were elderly or could not read? What would you do if your parents make racist statements what would you do if you saw something illegal? Would you report it? How about if someone cheated? Would you tell? Spiritually, as followers of Jesus, what would you do if you encountered someone who was deeply hurting? Or if a group of friends is cheating or speaking about inappropriate things, what would you do if someone blasphemed the Lord Jesus? I hope and wish and pray that more Christians would simply do the right thing and take action to stand for what is right. Not for their own personal agenda, but for the Lord's glory. If they did, then the gospel would make more of an impact 
in this generation. The churches today are not making an impact. Why? Because its people are afraid to stand up and to speak out. And Christians need to do that. We're called to do just this because we know the truth. And the truth and knowing the truth should challenge us to action. Look at verses 41 to 43. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horde, he said, Why is the city in such a noisy uproar? While he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Beathar, the priest. And Adonijah said to him, Come in, for you are a prominent man, and bring good news. Then Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The other party got word of Solomon's public anointing and the people's joyful response and celebration through the report of Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest. His accurate report is described in verses 44 to 48. And now King Solomon sits as co-regent to King David, verse 49. So all the guests who were with Adonijah, note this, were afraid and rose, and each one went his way. The guests who were at Adonijah's gathering and at his party were pretty smart. They realized they'd picked the wrong side to be with, and they knew they needed to get out of there as soon as possible. You know, it's funny how people can suddenly see with clarity what is right and what is wrong when their lives and their reputation are at stake. The guests there probably had their own political aspirations and motives thinking that if they supported Adonijah, it would benefit them. But when they saw being with Adonijah no longer benefited them, they were out of there. That, my friends, is real life. That is human nature. Only true friends stick around. The rest will abandon you if they don't need you. Know this lesson well. Verse 50, 53. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar, and he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Notice that the first act of King Solomon as co-regent of King David was to show grace and mercy. When he got the upper hand over his brother, he didn't exact revenge. He wisely showed mercy, my friends. When given the opportunity, first show grace and mercy. And that's our fourth principle when you're caught in the center of political games, whether in your family, amongst your friends, or even at work or school. Number four, show grace and mercy when given the opportunity. Show grace and mercy when given the opportunity. This is a great truth to remember for people in power. Don't let the power get to your head. Don't let the position get to your head. In leadership, you have the great opportunity to show love, grace, and mercy. And this is counterintuitive to what the world teaches. The world says, get rid of any potential rival and competition. 
But the Scriptures always teach love first and show grace. When actions need to be taken, take it. But when the opportunities arise, show grace and give a chance for redemption and restoration. In Moshian Malik's article, Unconventional Success, How Losers Outmaneuver Performance in the Professional Arena, he writes, a crucial element in the success of some losers is their mastery of office politics. They are adept at maneuvering through the complex dynamics of the workplace, forming alliances and strategically aligning themselves with influential individuals. By actively participating in the political landscape, they ensure their visibility and position themselves favorably for promotion and recognition, even if their actual performance may not warrant such accolades. Oh, we know people like that. They play the political game. For what purpose? To move up in life. But their actual performance don't warrant such an accolade. My friends, I share this with you because the world is not fair. You're going to walk into a place where people will be nice to you, but in the back they're stabbing you because they see you as competition. Everyone is playing the game to outplay, outwit, outmaneuver each other at home, in schools, in the office, in society, and sometimes even in church. As followers of Jesus Christ, if you're caught up in these games, remember these biblical principles. To realize that looks can be deceiving. To find out what is right and clarify what is true. To take action to stand for what is right to show grace and mercy when given the opportunity. I know the corporate world. I know the schemes of friendship groups. I know what associations look like to help the public, but everyone is angling for a position and recognition. That's the game everyone plays, but that's the game Christians should not be playing. We have a sole purpose, and so may the Lord grant wisdom for how then we should live our lives. To honor Him, to glorify Him, to make Him preeminent while we step back. Music.